So, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 135. Psalm 135. And uh, last week we um, capped off uh, the Songs of Ascents, um, Psalm 134, but there, I, I wanted to continue with Psalm 135 and 136, um, partly because of uh, just the Easter schedule, and there's, then I'm going to start a new series after Easter. Um, on Easter Sunday, we're not going to have uh, evening service. So um, we have Psalm 135 uh, this week and then Psalm 136 next week. And it's actually part of what is called the Egyptian Hallel from Psalm 120 to Psalm 136, these, these extra psalms, these uh, Psalm 135 and 136, um, just uh, kind of caps off the songs of ascents. So read along with me, Psalm 135. And... You'll notice um, I had begun today um, preaching through the Legacy Standard Bible, so you'll see um, where uh, the name of Yahweh is translated um, quite literally. Um, So Psalm 135, praise Yah, praise the name of Yahweh, praise him, O slaves of Yahweh, you who stand in the house of Yahweh, in the courts of the house of, of our God, praise Yah, for Yahweh is good. Sing praises to his name, for it is lovely. For Yah has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his treasured possession. For I know that Yahweh is great, and that our Lord is greater than all gods. Whatever Yahweh pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all deeps. The one who causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He struck the firstborn of Egypt, from man to beast. He sent signs and wonders into your midst, O Egypt, amongst Pharaoh and all his slaves. He struck many nations and slew mighty kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan. And he gave their inheritance as gave their land as an inheritance, an inheritance to Israel, his people. O Yahweh, your name is everlasting. O Yahweh, your remembrance is from generation to generation, for Yahweh will render justice for his people and will give comfort to his slaves. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Surely there is not any breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless Yahweh. O house of Aaron, bless Yahweh. O house of Levi, bless Yahweh. You who fear Yahweh, bless Yahweh. Blessed be Yahweh from Zion, who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise Yah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm that was included here in the Psalter, this um, compilation, so to speak, of many passages and just points our eyes upward towards you, directs our focus towards you, and is a call to worship you. So Lord, as we look at this psalm, let us do just that. Let us worship you in our hearts and minds for who you are and help us to better understand who you are, what you've done, what you've promised. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. So, um, as I was reading through this, you, you notice that the um, divine name, Yahweh, um, that's what it, um, what it says in Hebrew. Um, of course, uh, in our English translations, have I, has, have I, as I have said before, um, sorry, uh, early on, um, even prior to the uh, New Testament, probably around... Um, around 300 B.C. or so, um, when the, uh, the Jews were translating the Old Testament into Greek, the Septuagint, they, and it, this was probably even before that, they have de- had decided, um, there was this, this thought that um, the name of God was so highly and exalted, high and exalted, that it should not be uttered off of unclean lips. And so they would um, translate wherever the Hebrew would have Yahweh, they would translate it as Adonai, Lord. And so we, that's why most of our English translations have Lord. And to distinguish between Yahweh and um, Adonai, um, they would, um, where it was Yahweh translated into Lord, they would have all caps Lord. And then um, Adonai um, would be uh, just a capitalized L. So um, that's where we see this psalm. And, and as I was reading um, uh, through the Legacy Standard Bible, it translates it Yahweh. But in, in the beginning, it says praise Yah. Now, um, the Hebrew word for praise is Hallel. Hallel. So starts off Hallelujah. That's where Hallel praise Yah. Hallelujah. Um, so, and we see that many times in this psalm. And as I said, this is, in a sense, a, a compilation. We can um, see um, many verses quoted. Psalm 115 um, has um, many uh, of the same verses. Um, and um, many commentators would say that Psalm 135 takes from Psalm 115, along with many other psalms, many other passages in the law, um, and you see that even in, in, in many psalms, um, you see uh, just quotations from the law and, the, and even from the prophets. And um, uh, when you see it in the, in the law, in the Torah, the first five books, you can see that that came first. Most likely that came first, and then the psalms copied it. But nonetheless, um, uh, you know, uh, the writers of Scripture, they quoted Scripture. And we see that in the Psalms. Um, Alan Ross, in his commentary on the Psalms, he writes this. He says, This Psalm is a hymn praising God as the sovereign creator and the Lord of history. Its message is an expansion of Psalm 134, and its contents are composed of many citations from and allusions to other scriptures. So it's, in a sense, a a compilation of uh, scripture, of praise. It's... um, it's almost as, as if um, it's a, a greatest hits album of the Psalms. <laughs> so it collects a lot of things together. Um, and, but I like what Charles Spurgeon wrote about this uh, psalm in his commentary, The Treasury of David. He writes this, The whole psalm is a compound of many choice extracts, and yet it has the continuity and freshness of an original poem. The Holy Spirit occasionally repeats himself, 
not because he has any lack of thoughts or words, but because it is expedient for us that we hear the same things in the same form. Yet when our great teacher uses repetition, it is usually with instructive variations which deserve our careful attention. So even though uh, many, much of this psalm is quotations, it's arranged in such a way that there's structure and there's a purpose for it. Um, so as we look at this psalm, um, it, in a sense, breaks up uh, quite evenly into three parts, though the three parts aren't equal. Um, we have verses 1 to 4, and then 5 to 18, and then 19 to 21. And uh, as it breaks up in three parts, I, I also see those three parts, within those three parts, there's three main elements of a biblical worship service. It's, in a sense, follows a biblical worship service. We have first an initial call to God's people to praise him in verses one to four. Second, a reasoned argument for God's people to praise him from verses five to 18. And then third, a concluding call to God's people to praise him. So we have a call to worship in the beginning, in a sense, a sermon throughout the middle, um, giving reasons and arguments and cause for praise. And then finally, uh, a benediction or a concluding call to praise. So we'll look at it in, in that way. So first, an initial call to God's people to praise him, verses 1 to 4. Praise Yah, praise the name of Yahweh. Praise him, O slaves of Yahweh. You who stand in the house of Yahweh, in the courts of the house of our God, praise Yah, for Yahweh is good. Sing praises to his name, for it is lovely. For Yah has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his treasured possession. And in this initial call, uh, you could uh, easily see four parts as the four verses that this initial call first goes to all of his servants. Uh, verse 1 Praise the name of Yahweh. Praise him, O slaves of Yahweh. All, or servants, servants of the Lord, you might have in your translation, to all of his servants. And then second, um, the call goes out to all of his ministers. You who stand in the house of Yahweh, in the courts of the house of our God. The, the, probably the Levites, the priests, but it's not just those who are technically Levites, technically priests, but anyone who is standing in the house of Yahweh and in the courts, the courts, the out external part of the, the temple, which, um, you know, when we look at the temple, um, the first most outer court is the court of women and then the court of men. And then um, as you get closer and closer, um, there, those uh, different um, parts of the temple grounds were reserved for um, Levites and then for priests. And, and then even in the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could go once a year. Um, but everyone who is, in a sense, on that, the temple grounds, within the courts. So it, it, it could be um, primarily his ministers, but it includes everybody else who is in the courts. And then third... Um, there's an initial to call to God's people to praise him because of his character. Because of his character. Praise Yah for Yahweh is good. He's good. Sing praises to his name for it is lovely. 
It is lovely. It's lovely to praise him. And then fourth, we see, because you are his people, for Yah has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his treasured possession. And this is, in a sense, um, a good call to worship. It first goes out to everyone, to all his people, all his servants, and then especially to his ministers. Um, whether that be, uh, you know, in that day, uh, even, even as in our day, um, they had uh, the priests um, who, yes, their primary role was to... Um, was to sacrifice um, and to uh, take care of all the temple grounds, all the things that had to do with worship, the, the trimming of the lamps, the showbread, um, cleaning up, um, and uh, teaching the word of God. Um, but in addition to uh, those other duties, there were singers, there was choirs, there was musicians, um, so this is a call to all of them, and um, we, in a sense, uh, can even relate to that in, in our calls to worship, calls to everyone here to um, praise God, and we praise him because of his character, because he is good. He's, he's good in all that he does, all that he says, um, his character, I, I mean, he, he's not just good as an attribute, but he defines good. He is a standard by which good is measured. And we sing praises to his name because it's lovely to do. It's a, it's a lovely thing to do because he is lovely, because the praises are lovely when they're sung to him with a pure heart. And we praise him because we are his people. Verse 4, Yah has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his treasured possession. That's why they exist. That's why they were chosen to praise him, to give him praise, to honor him in their whole life. And I'd like you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And we see uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, in a sense, uh, Israel's charter, the reason why they exist, the reason why they're a nation, um, their relationship with God. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 10 says this, For you are a holy people to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Yahweh did not set his affection on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, Yahweh brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You shall know, therefore, that Yahweh your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to make them perish. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. This is a reminder to Israel that they are a holy people 
to God. And, and not because they are in and of themselves holy, but uh, just the term holy means set apart. And God has set them apart for himself to be their, his treasured possession. Not because of anything they did or could do or would do or because they were great, but just simply because he loves them. And he loves them because he loves them. Not because of what they are or who they are, but just simply because he chose them and chose to display his love upon them, just like he chose us. And he even tells them that, he reminds them of that, speaking through Moses, that uh, he is also just and holy, and he will repay them for their sins, or, or anyone, anyone who hates him. Hates him. He will not delay in his judgments. And also a reminder to know that he is God and he is the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindnesses to remember his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we see this initial uh, call to God's people to praise him, to all of his servants, to all of his ministers, because of his character and because. You, Israel, and you, church, are his people. We are his people. And then second, and the bulk of this psalm, is a reasoned argument for God's people to praise him. And so, uh, you know, you just imagine a worship service, and, and you, we, we just saw the initial call to worship, to gather to worship, everyone to worship, and why they are to worship. And now we get into this argument for why they are to worship, all, all the causes for worship. We had the call to worship, now we have the causes to worship. Verse 5, For I know that Yahweh is great, and that our Lord is greater than all gods. Whatever Yahweh pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all deeps. The one who causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth who makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He struck the firstborn of Egypt from man to beast. He sent signs and wonders into your midst, O Egypt. Amongst Pharaoh and all his slaves, he struck many nations and slew mighty kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan. And he gave their land as an inheritance, an inheritance to Israel, his people. O Yahweh, your name is everlasting. O Yahweh, your remembrance is from generation to generation. For Yahweh will render justice for his people and will give comfort to his slaves. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Surely there is not any breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them. All who trust in them. And so, there's a list of several reasons that the psalmist lays out in, in, in order, in a sense, starting with God and then working down to um, the unbelievers and the false gods. All these reasons why they are to praise him. And, and there's a reason why um, God's people require uh, this argument 
Why, why God's people require regular and frequent arguments to praise him. Why, why we, um, in a sense, uh, preach the word of God and, and a good sermon is an argument. It's an argument. This is what the psalmist gives, uh, an argument for the praise of God. Uh, Old Testament scholar Alec Motyer, he, uh, he points to this in his commentary where he writes this about this psalm. He says, communal praise only has the value that each individual contributes to it. The pilgrims worship together, but personal conviction is essential. I, for my part, know indeed, it's translating verse 5, I, for my part, know indeed, for I know that Yahweh is great. He goes on to say, pagan thought permeated the whole universe with many gods, especially the seas and the depths. The Psalms love to dwell on the fact of one sole creator God, whose writ runs everywhere without exception, and whose will governs even the detail of climatic change. All gods are mentioned not because they exist objectively, but because they are worshipped and magnetize the devotion of deluded minds. There's in a sense that this um, argument in verses 5 to 7 that Yahweh is great, that he is greater than all gods, this comparison between um, Yahweh, the one true and only God, and all the false gods, and um, this argument to worship him, because uh, there's a sense that idolatry is pervasive. It's pervasive. And, and um, you know, when we read the Old Testament, we read the Bible, um, we see it more there than we do in our Western civilization, our world here. But throughout most of the world, throughout most of world history, idolatry was the norm. Worshiping idols, and not just one god, one nation having its own idol, its own god, but multiple gods, and exchanging gods. And when one god didn't give them what they thought, then they would go worship another idol. And so this is the context of Israel. And in a sense, it's, it's our context as well. Even though we, in, in America, and in our own context, we don't have um, uh, physical idols so much. It's becoming more and more. Um, our, our society is becoming more paganized. And um, so, but, you know, as, as uh, I believe it was Calvin who wrote it first, and some have copied him, that our hearts are idol factories. They churn out idols. And it is, so if it's not a physical object that we worship, um, it's, it's a concept. Or, or just hoping for you know, uh, experiences or adventures or money or material possessions or relationships or... Um, some fleshly indulgence, whether that be food, substance abuse, or sexual immorality, or whatever the case may be, um, our hearts churn out idols, things we desire more than God. And so um, there's several reasons that the psalmist lists out why the Israelites and we are to praise God. And we're to be reminded of these, these causes, these reasons, this argument. And so in his list of reasons, the first in his sermon or his argument is um, because of God's glory and sovereignty. 
he, he, he starts his argument for God's people to praise him first and foremost because of his glory and his sovereignty. And we see this in verses five to six that he is great. He's glorious. He's uh, magnificent. He's higher than anything else. He's greater than anything else. He is greater than all gods. Whatever Yahweh pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all deeps. He's sovereign. He's greater and more glorious than anything, especially the false gods of man's imagination. He does whatever he pleases. He is sovereign, which is what it means to be God. What it means to be God. A, a, a God who is not sovereign, like the false gods of false religions that... Uh, uh, they're not God because they're not sovereign. They're not in control. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And that's another quote from Psalm 115. He, he does whatever he pleases. And that, in a sense, can, can bristle against uh, human pride. That he does whatever he pleases and, and no one can thwart his will no one can question him but it's the main reason why we are to praise him because of his glory and sovereignty second um, the second argument for God's people to praise him is because of his works in creation verse 7 the one who causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth who makes lightnings for the rain who brings forth the wind from his storehouses he goes back to creation, and, and this happens in several of the Psalms all throughout the Old Testament that the, the creation, the creative order, God's creative genius and wisdom is a reason for his praise. This is a sense, uh, you know, a, a, as I read these, the, this verse, verse 7, talking about the clouds and the, the earth, the lightnings, the rain, the wind from his storehouses. It makes me think of, of God's rebuke to Job at the end of Job. And, you know, if, if you're ever feeling a, a bit arrogant or, or prideful or boasting in anything, that, that's a good portion of Scripture to go to. Or you're ever frustrated at circumstances in the world. Because this is essentially what God does to Job. Job is is trying to figure out why he is suffering in him. As God even says, he was blameless and upright. It, God loved Job. Um, Job was probably more righteous than most of us. Um, he, he was a blameless man, meaning um, externally um, there was no charge you could really put against him. He seemed externally righteous. He was a sinner. We know that all men are sinners, but he was a righteous man. And yet he's trying to figure out what's happening to him all throughout the book of Job. And he, he doesn't get the benefit of Job chapter 1. Of seeing what's happening in the divine council that, that God is using him. Um, to, in a sense, to, to show Satan that he cannot destroy a believer's faith. But God is also using him to um, give us a, almost a, a field manual on how to suffer well. And as many preachers have said before, and I've said this at, and told people this, at, that God has gotten a lot of mileage out of Job. And he continues to get mileage out of Job. But in the end, when Job is still not getting it, 
God goes to the creation. He goes to his creative order and he says, do you know? Do you know the, the, the storehouses of snow? Do you understand? He goes through all these, um, in a sense, uh, uh, systems and um, animals and creatures, all these, the, the order of creation. He, tell, he tells Job, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Do you understand? Do you even understand how things work? And just looking at the creation is enough to, for us to praise God. Um, and we ought to take those times to go out in a nature hike and just reflect on God's creative genius and his wisdom. But also um, in his creative order is his common grace. His common grace, and the psalmist points to that, that he causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth, the clouds that bring rain, or rain that would um, water crops and bring food, brings forth the wind from his storehouses. This is common grace. As Jesus said, he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. He provides for all his creatures in their time. And he orders creation according to his will. So, God's people are to praise him because of his glory and sovereignty. Second, because of his works in creation. And third, because of his conquest of Egypt. His conquest of Egypt, verses 8 and 9. He struck the firstborn of Egypt from man to beast. He sent signs and wonders into your midst, O Egypt, amongst Pharaoh and all his slaves. And this... Um, all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout, and even there's parts in the New Testament that hint back at this. But um, Israel's deliverance from Egypt, it, it was a key aspect of their national identity. It, it, God and the, the prophets, they, they always pointed Israel back to their great deliverance. And, and it wasn't... It wasn't just their great deliverance, so it was a great deliverance. And, and even our salvation, it foreshadows our salvation from sin. Um, but there's, there's also the sense that uh, that was when they legitimately became a nation. It, it, it was when they could start to see the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being fulfilled. Because even when Joseph um, went down to Egypt and he becomes a prime minister and in a, in a sense not only saves Egypt but by his wisdom he saves um, his father Jacob and all his uh, uh, brothers and their families but they, they were only 70 people. And they, they, they had the promises. They had the promises. They remembered the promises uh, Joseph remembered the promises. Jacob remembered the promises. But it was still kind of hard to see. Uh, that, that promise to Abraham that he will bless him and make him uh, a father of many nations. But when they were being delivered out of Egypt, this miraculous deliverance, um, ten plagues and then the crossing of the Red Sea, they were to see this, that... And at that point, um, I mean, a conservative estimate would put them at 2 million people. Um, 
but they could see a, a nation of slaves being delivered from the, the, the world's superpower at the time, the greatest empire. And, and it's interesting, uh, the psalmist starts with, um, with this final plague, the final plague, and then, then backwards to all of the lesser plagues. He struck the firstborn of Egypt, from man to beast, all the firstborn, but um, most uh, specifically, the firstborn of Pharaoh. They kind of, uh, Pharaoh was in a sense worshipped and, and his son would be worshipped as well. And God shows, him, this is uh, the clincher, the, the, the grand finale of all the plagues. And each plague was linked to one of uh, Egypt's gods. Um, the frogs, the gnats, the river Nile. It was in a sense showing, showing um the Egyptians and the Israelites that, that God is more powerful than these, the false gods of Egypt. And the final one is the son of Pharaoh. But he, he, the psalmist, he, he works backwards and he talks about all the signs and wonders that happened in their midst amongst Pharaoh and all his slaves. Um, and it's interesting that he says all his slaves because they were, um, in a sense, Pharaoh's slaves. But he's, he's probably talking about the, the Egyptian slaves or the slaves in Pharaoh's household. He destroyed them all. He destroyed the world's superpower and redeemed a nation of slaves. And, and this is why this is why they are to worship him. This is their heritage. So the psalmist's argument for God's people to praise him, it begins with his glory and sovereignty. And then because of his works in creation, then because of his conquest of Egypt, and then because of his conquest of the land. And, and we see an order here. We see an order here starting with God and creation, and then the nation, and then his conquest of the promised land. Verses 10 to 12. He struck many nations and slew mighty kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan. And he gave their land as an inheritance, an inheritance to Israel, his people. He, he uh, removed all of their obstacles along the way. And, and along the way, as he's removing these obstacles, going and, and helping them providentially to defeat these enemies, he's also building their faith through those 40 years in the wilderness and up until their conquest of the land. And even in the conquest of the land, God is building their faith, and he builds their faith in spite of their unfaithfulness. Because originally, had they obeyed, um, it would have been, you know, about... 11, 12 days, a couple weeks, would have gone up um, into the promised land and started their conquest. But because they um, failed, they wavered in their faith, they uh, wandered around for 40 years until that first generation died off. But nonetheless, God is faithful in spite of their unfaithfulness and, and in spite of our unfaithfulness. He's faithful, and I think this is what the psalmist is, is drawing out. He was faithful to his promises. He punished the pagans through them. 
and the pagans around them, just like he, he said he would. He fulfilled his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even his promises through Moses and Joshua that he would defeat their enemies. He would go before them and he would go with them. He would not, neither leave them nor forsake them. And so they, they are to praise him. God's people are to praise him because of his conquest of the land. And the next, they are to praise him because of his attributes and character. Verse 13 and 14. Oh, Yahweh, your name is everlasting. Oh, Yahweh, your remembrance is from generation to generation. For Yahweh will render justice for his people and will give comfort to his slaves. He'll give comfort to his slaves. And right here we see uh, quite a few attributes of God that um, the psalmist is, is pointing the Israelites back to. Oh, Yahweh, your name is everlasting. His eternality and his immutability. As even the writer to Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is everlasting. He's immutable. He's unchanging. He's never wavering. He doesn't change his mind. And we see also his faithfulness and renown. His faithfulness and renown. Oh, Yahweh, your remembrance is from generation to generation. He is faithful from generation to generation, and his renown goes from generation to generation. He proves himself faithful, and he always preserves a remnant. No matter what is going on in the nation or what is going on in the church, he preserves a remnant. Even as dark as it gets, he always has his people. He always has his people. And Moses, uh, I, I love the psalm of Moses, the, the one psalm that he writes, Psalm 90. And just the beginning, he starts it off in and. You know, in Moses' psalm, you can, you can see a bit of pain. But there's also hope. There's trust in God. There's the greatness of God. Psalm 90 and verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place from generation to generation. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And I think this is what the psalmist here in Psalm 135 is pointing back to, to um, not just uh, uh, Moses' psalm, Psalm 90, but uh, just God's faithfulness, his eternality, his, his immutability, his um, renown goes from generation to generation. And then the psalmist moves to his justice, for Yahweh will render justice for his people. He'll render justice for his people, even if that takes 400 years, as it did in the, the case of the Israelites in Egypt. He will render justice, even if we don't see justice in our life. Yahweh will render justice for his people and will give comfort to his slave. The psalmist highlights his justice, his deliverance, his retribution, but also his preservation of the people. That he will give comfort to his slaves, to his servants, to his people. He will provide them comfort. He will preserve them. He will, um, he will be with them. He will show them his presence. Where, wherever he sends us, he goes with us. As he, even you know, God has said several times to the prophets, um, especially we see this in Joshua, and we see it also in Jeremiah, um, 
be strong and courageous. I will not leave you nor forsake you. If he sends us on a, a task or through a trial, he goes with us. And so we're to praise him because of his attributes and character. But finally, the last argument in, uh, in the psalmist's uh, lists of reason to praise God is God's people are to praise him because of the futility and the consequences of idolatry. We are to praise him because of the futility and consequences of idolatry. And it's interesting that he would bring that up, but there's a reason why he does after all these positive reasons to bring up, to, to uh, all these positive reasons to praise God, then the, he caps it off with a negative reason. He goes in verses 15 to 18. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Surely there is not any breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, all who trust in them. He's pointing out the futility of idolatry. Uh, that idols are, are worthless, they're stupid, they're dumb. Um, worshiping them is dumb. And there's a consequence to worshiping them because those who make them will be like them. You will turn into a dumb idol, in a sense. And, and the psalmist brings this out because uh, God has created us, he has designed us to be worshipers. And so the issue isn't... Um, isn't whether or not we will worship. The issue is what we will worship. Because if we do not worship God, we will worship something else. Our hearts are, as I said, an idol factory. As many preachers have said, have written, that we are always worshiping. And more often than not, we worship ourselves because we think of ourselves more than anything else. We think about what we want, what we desire, what would please us, what would um, contribute to our well-being, what would advance us. We worship experiences and things. But we are to worship God. We're not to worship idols. We're not to turn to idols. And, and we can see it clearly in, in the physical idols of, of the pagans. But there's a reason why the psalmist um, he tags this on to the end as a reason to praise God that we would not become like the pagans. I, I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 44. In Isaiah chapter 44, you know, there's this list and many of the prophets, um, one of the main purpose for the prophets was to call Israel back to um, covenant faithfulness, to call them to repent from their idolatry, to call them back to be faithful to God, to be faithful to God and um, not to turn to idols, not to worship like the, uh, the pagans do. And, and all throughout um, you know, Isaiah, he, he points this out, and as does all the other prophets, but especially in... Um, these first few, uh, uh, these first uh, chapters in, in the second half of Isaiah, in 40, 
1 to about 45, he points this out, especially in 44. 44 verse 9, he writes this, Those who form a graven image are all of them futile, and their desirable things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know so that they will be put to shame. Who has formed a God or cast a graven image to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame. The craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them be in dread. Let them together be put to shame. The man crafts iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, forming it with hammers and working it with his powerful arm. He also gets hungry and has no power. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another crafts wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with a stylus. He makes it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the glory of, a man, of man, so that it may sit in a house. In order to cut cedars for himself, he takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he, he takes one of them and warms himself. He also kindles a fire to bake bread. He also works to produce a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before of it. Before it, Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god. His graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They do not know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they will have no insight. It's, just, it's futility, it's foolishness, it's the height of foolishness, it's, it's the height of depravity. It's, it's uh, the, the best illustration of a depraved mind. That we would make something and then worship it as if it's our God. And we made it. It's so silly. Uh, it's uh, you know, seeking help and life in the lifeless and helpless. And, and what that does, as the psalmist says, it makes you lifeless and helpless. Those who make them will be like them. And he puts this at the end in, in, in a contrast. This is a, a contrast to praise God. And it's a contrast to God, a contrast to Yahweh. And we just look at it. That, uh, they have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. They, they do not speak, but Yahweh does. They don't see, but Yahweh does. They don't hear, but Yahweh does. He always hears, he always sees, he is always speaking because his word is forever fixed in the heavens. His word endures forever. Uh, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. God is always speaking. He's always speaking to us to turn from our sins and to turn to him. Listen to what John Calvin writes in his um, commentary on Psalm 135. He encompasses uh, this, this whole psalm when he says this. It says, Psalm 135 is an exhortation to praise God, both for his goodness, specially shown to his chosen people, 
and for his power and glory apparent in the world at large. A contrast is drawn between idols, which had but a vain show of divinity, and the God of Israel who had established his claim to be considered the only true God by clear and indubitable proofs, and this with the view of leading his people the more cheerfully to praise him and submit to his government. Hallelujah. It's interesting. He says uh, there's a contrast is drawn between idols which had but a vain show of divinity. A vain show of uh, divinity or of religion or of something divine. It's, it's just a vain and foolish thing. It's, it's like a, a, a child drawing a stick figure and trying to pass it off as a masterpiece. It's just, you know, it's foolish. It's vain. It's useless. It's futile. So, as we have seen in this psalm, we have uh, seen first an initial call to God's people to praise him. Second, a reasoned argument for God's people to praise him. All these arguments, all these um, instances of God's glory and the futility and consequences of idolatry. And then lastly, in this psalm, we see a concluding call to God's people to praise him in verses 19 to 21. A concluding call to God's people to praise him. O house of Israel, bless Yahweh. O house of Aaron, bless Yahweh. O house of Levi, bless Yahweh. You who fear Yahweh, bless Yahweh. Blessed be Yahweh from Zion, who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise Yah, or hallelujah. When we see this concluding call, uh, we, we saw the initial call, and, and likewise, a concluding call is similar. And in the middle, we see the sermon, uh, why they are to praise God. And then we get to this concluding call, and we see that this call goes out first to his chosen people and the ministers. To his chosen people and the ministers. O house of Israel. O house of Aaron. O house of Levi. Starting with the nation. Those called by his name. All those who are called by the name of God. And then second, those commissioned for his service. Those commissioned for his service. The house of Aaron. The, the, the first priest to be commissioned and consecrated for service in all his de- descendants. And then those given a heritage and an inheritance of service. The house of Levi. That, you know, the, the, the tribe of Levi, they didn't have a portion of the land. God was their portion. Now, they, they were given cities. They were given cities to live in. But their portion was in the service of God. That was their reward. That was their inheritance. That was their heritage. To bless God. This is what they're to do. And this concluding call goes out to the nation. Then um, those commissioned and those given this inheritance. Ministers. And then it goes out even further to all those who fear him. To all who fear him. You who fear Yahweh, bless Yahweh. And there's this, uh, this concept, this principle, this, uh, in a sense, a, a title of God-fear in the Old Testament. Those who fear God. And when it's put in, in contrast to Israel, 
It's talking about those sojourners, those Gentiles that would come into the nation um, one way or the other. They would come into the nation, they would join the nation and worship uh, Yahweh, worship God. We, we think of Ruth and we, we think of uh, Rahab and many other uh, Gentile converts. A holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we, we are created and we are redeemed to praise God. It's what we exist for. It's the reason why we exist. It's, it's the purpose for which God created the world, created the, the, the universe. It's um, Jonathan Edwards' book, Purpose for Which God Created the World, to receive glory. And why he created us, to praise him, to give him glory. Why, why we are here. It's interesting that, you know, um, many people go around um, and, and they'll jokingly say, oh, what's the meaning of life? Like, I can't know it. I don't know the meaning of life. And um, if I could just find that out or, um, you know, they, they have catchy sayings or jokes about the meaning of life. And uh, I remember... When I first started uh, serving in children's Sunday school, and, and I would tell the kids, I was like, hey, people spend their whole lives trying to figure out the meaning of life, and I'm going to tell you it right now. Meaning of life is worship. You're created to worship. You're redeemed to worship. You're called to worship. It's what we are to do with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are called to worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this call to worship. Lord, you know us better than um, anything. You know us in and out, past, present, and future. You've created us to worship. And yet more often than not, we don't worship you. We worship idols of our hearts and our imaginations, idols in the world. We worship ourselves. And uh, you have not only created us to worship, but you've redeemed us to worship. You've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light so that we may proclaim your excellencies. And Lord, we thank you for the reminders to do just that. That you have not left us in the darkness, but you've shown your great light upon us. Lord, help us to walk in the light and to be salt and light in this dark and decaying world. We thank you for this reminder, for your grace, for your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.